He has risen. He has risen. Or as they're saying, the PJV version, that's the Phil Johnson version. He is woke. <laughs> he is woke. Indeed would be the proper response. He didn't have to go there, I guess, if he didn't want to. It's your prerogative, not mine. You guys, good evening. Welcome to Easter Sunday. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here in this community, and we are so excited to be together as a family and to step back into this story that, that holds all of our stories, that speaks into who we are and who we are yet to be. And so let's not delay the inevitable. Let's get into the story. We are going to be looking at Mark 16, 1 through 8. Mark is the first, of the, he's the first one to tell the story. He is our earliest gospel account. And when he goes about to tell this story, he says it like so, 16, 1 through 8. And it reads like this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they got scared. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and tell Peter that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled for the tomb. And they actually said nothing to nobody because they were afraid. You know, I read this text this morning and uh, I hadn't really thought about it before, but it's amazing and ironic and sad and true how working in a church during Holy Week can lead to some of the most unholy of behaviors because you are going 2,000 miles an hour and you are stressed to the max and it's all attached to this constant weight, this pressure that may not even be real, but you feel it all the same where you need to provide an experience that is actually reflective of the Easter expectations that you all are walking in here with. And so I've been feeling that way and as I read this text, I, I find grace in it. Because I'm thinking to myself that even in these moments that are about to come, if I fail to provide you enough bells and whistles, if this does not dazzle you enough, I find comfort in knowing that Mark didn't necessarily do that either. Mark's not popping bottles at the end of 16.8. What's the last line here? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to nobody because they were afraid for all of the pomp in the pastels and the parties that come with this date. Mark is not exactly like unleashing a laser show. He's not unleashing a confetti gun. He is actually talking about something that's pretty vanilla, anticlimactic for such a climactic moment. In the first person to tell the Easter story, he provides from us a, a proclamation from a stranger, but not the presence of the Savior. There is a mission that is assigned, but then right afterwards, that mission is quickly aborted. 
We expect to you know, follow the women to the scene and when they get to the grave and they find that it's empty, we expect that they're going to be celebrating and it looks something like this, just pumped, like you can't take it anymore. But instead, we find something that's just a little bit different. It's not that at all. It's a dark moment. Unlike in Matthew and Luke and John where there are earthquakes and angels and disciples who are trying to decide who is the fastest to get to the grave and actual encounters with the risen Christ. Mark comes to this climactic point in his story and he says, I think I'll stop right here. Sends it in. Done. The first person to write the story of Jesus brings that story to a stop like this. And though it is dark in this room, I can see a few of your heads shaking right now, rather concerned because you're reading the text and you're hearing me talk and you're going, does he know what he is saying? Because Mark doesn't stop at 16.8. It actually goes on to 16.20. What kind of educational experience is you know, required for this pastoral position? I get your concern. You are right. The Gospel of Mark does not stop at 16.8. It actually does go on to 16.20. You aren't wrong when you say that, but the Gospel writer Mark, he stopped at 8. Scholars almost unanimously agree that the first 100 years of Mark didn't look like the last 1,900 years of Mark have. Our oldest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament have Mark finishing his story at 16.8, not 16.20. Whereas 16.8, the people are left inside of a place of ambiguity. They're left inside of a place of angst. They're left with the presence of an empty tomb, but they're also left with the absence of a risen Savior. It wasn't until the second century that scribes started to get tired with how Mark brought his story to a close and figured that they'd try to clean it up a little bit. And they went above and beyond when they did. They didn't stop at all. In the 12 verses that are tacked on to the end of the Gospel of Mark, you have a lot of different things in a short amount of space. You have Mark sending Jesus going out to see Mary for the first time. You have Jesus on the Emmaus Road with the two other disciples. You have Jesus stepping in on a dinner with the disciples and getting mad at them for not believing the reports that a dead man had been walking. And then it gets to this point at the end where they have Jesus saying to all people that you are to go out into the world and preach to the world and you are to heal the sick and free people from demonic spells. And then they say that Jesus once said, this is where it gets really interesting, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people And everybody's going to be just fine. They will pick up snakes and they won't be hurt. They will drink down poison and they won't be hurt. And every time I read that, I get where they're coming from. Because if you're a scribe at this time and the religious authorities of your day have said, go ahead, green light, you can edit and add on to Mark's story. It's been desperate for a cleanup for a few years now. You get a room of people together, they pull the whiteboard out, they start asking questions like, well, what should we put in there? What's missing from the story? Obviously, somebody from the back of the room is going to yell, tell them that we can pick up snakes and they don't hurt. And somebody else is going to try to one up and go, and drink poison too. And their hands cannot write it down fast enough because this is all gold. This is going to sell. This is 
powerful stuff. You can pick up snakes, you can be bit, and you won't get hurt. It all sounds lovely. It all sounds perfect in the post-resurrection world that leads, if you go all the way to 1620, believers have bodies of power. We have protection. If you go beyond where Mark was willing to go, we are told that in this post-resurrection world, we are bulletproof. And that all the ambiguity about where Jesus has gone is now gone. And that sounds lovely, but that's, that's not what Mark said. Mark didn't write it till 1620. Mark wrote it to 168. That's not the story. That's not the resurrection story that Mark left us. And on a day like today, I say thank God. Because that's not the story of our reality that we live in. Mark's story of resurrection is not one of pain-free parties, but it ends with fear and trembling. It's not one of future missions, but of a failed mission. It's not one where we can hear and hold the risen Christ. It's where we hear that he has gone ahead of us and is calling us forward still. Mark writes his story at the end of the first century. And at this point in time, for those of you who know your history, you know that Christians weren't thriving at this time. In Rome specifically, they were being fed to lions. It was a dark and tumultuous moment. And so Mark writes his story for people like that who are stuck in a place of suffering, of pain, of loss, of agony. When the first gospel writer sets out to tell you what the resurrection looked like, what the first Easter Sunday was all about, he is writing it with Christians in Rome in mind, people who are being traumatized and killed for their faith. Mark's story is for people like that. Mark's story is for days like today. Mark's story is for people like the Christians in Sri Lanka who woke up this morning to hear the good news of death's defeat only to be killed before they could. Mark's story is for the children in Columbine High School who 20 years ago on this weekend went to school, didn't come back home, and left all of us terrified of going back the next day. Mark's story is for the widows who sleep alone in beds built for two. For children who can't pray to a father because of a father who first prayed on them. For the addicts that can't come clean. For the abandoned who can't trust the home. For the cynics who no longer have the energy still to hope. And for the skeptics who can't overcome their need to know. That's who Mark wrote this story for. That's why we leave it at 16.8. Mark said that Jesus was raised from the dead inside of a world where snakes still can kill you and where poison still can take you out. Mark isn't claiming that on this side of Easter you will be bulletproof, but Mark is calling you to be brave. Because while Mark doesn't stop where we think he should stop, he wants you to know that your life doesn't stop where you think that it does. That while the Easter story and your story and my story are not free of pain, they are now in the post-resurrection reality free of periods. Resurrection isn't the removal of pain, it's the removal of the period. The resurrection of Christ is the revelation of the comma. It's the final evidence that death doesn't get the last say anymore because the ultimate lover who went down, got back up and took life with him. And what is true about the life in that tomb 2,000 years ago is true about the 2,000 tombs in your life today. It's true. What they did to you is not where your story stops. 
what they took from you is not the last word on your life. Your depression will not have the final word. Your anxiety will not have the final word. Your divorce is not the only truth about you. There is life beyond the pain that you are in. There is life beyond the loss that you thought was going to take you down. That's what this story has come to say. There is life beyond the loss. Because the one that was laid to die now lives. And he has gone up ahead. And he's asking us to be brave enough to walk where he goes. To stay close. To believe in the insistence of life. And the impotence of death. Love has lifted heavier things before and love will do so again. And so that leads us to the post-Easter question that we ask. How, how do we carry ourselves in a post-Easter Good Friday world? Well, as followers of Christ, we do have an answer. We don't carry ourselves. We insist on being carried. If we're following Jesus, we recall that the last words that he offers up from the cross, our Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We follow the Christ who on the cross dies in an ambiguous and unpleasant ending that isn't full of clarity, that isn't angst-free, but he dies with a dare in his mouth as he throws his life into the arms of God, trusting that love will carry him where he needs to go next. And three days later, we find out that love does. That's where the bravery will bring you, to the other side that you didn't think you could get to. You know, I'm, I'm an old man now at 33 years old. I'm tucking my shirts in now. Did you see that? <laughs> One of the things that I've realized is that when I get two days like this, this that ask you to uh, believe with your heart, sometimes even more than where you can go with your head, I've realized when it comes to my faith that I, uh, the older I get, the less I actually believe, but what I still do believe, I believe a lot more. And while I have 10,027 different questions about what happened 2,000 years ago, what an actual resurrection looked like, I was not present, and so I am curious. While I do not know all the ins and outs of what took place on that day, I do believe in resurrection, probably more than I ever have before. I believe that there is life beyond the grave because I've experienced it. I've seen life happen before the grave. I've seen people die and get back up again. I've seen marriages that were destroyed somehow come back together. I've seen people hit rock bottom and think that there wouldn't be a tomorrow and now they are thriving and standing still today. I've seen people who believed that their lives had come to a full stop with the period attached, but then they remembered the resurrection of Christ and they took the period down and they put a comma in its place. May we have the courage, may we have the bravery to trust that even though we do not have Christ in our arms today, we do not have his voice ringing in our ears, we do trust that he has gone up ahead. And where he goes, we too can go. That in the midst of all that hurts, all of the pain, all of the things that look like it's finally coming down to this, there's still more to come. That because love won on that day 2,000 years ago, love will win again. He has risen. He has risen indeed. Amen.
we celebrate um, the resurrection story on this day. And it's not a story that has us saying, it's all good. But it's a story that reminds us that our God is good. That our God stands with us. And the joys and the sorrows and the pain and the suffering. It's a story about a God that goes before us and invites us into that story. It's a story of love. A reminder that we are the beloved and we're called to love one another. And so on this day, we celebrate that story. On the night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples. And after giving thanks to his father, he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. The new covenant. When you drink from this cup, remember me. So that's what we do when we take the bread and we dip it into the cup. We remember this God who goes before us. We remember a God that makes all things new. Makes all things new here on earth and in heaven as well. So during the music, we invite you to come up as you'd like. There'll be gluten-free elements right up front, regular elements on the side. You can take the bread and dip it into the cup. And if you would, please stand as together we pray that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 